0: Now the Lord had said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here, and when he does, he will drive you out completely. Tell the men, tell the people that men and women alike are, are, are to ask their neighbors for articles of silver and gold. The Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people, and Moses himself was highly regarded in Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and by the people. So Moses said, this is what the Lord says. About midnight, I will go throughout Egypt. Every firstborn son in Egypt will die. From the firstborn son of Pharaoh, who sits on the throne, to the firstborn son of the slave girl who is at her hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle as well. There will be loud wailing throughout Egypt, worse than there has ever been or ever will be again. But among the Israelites, not a dog will bark at any man or animal. Then you will know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come to me, bowing down before me and saying, Go, you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave. Then Moses, hot with anger, left Pharaoh. The Lord had said to Moses, Pharaoh will refuse to listen to you so that my wonders may be multiplied in Egypt. Moses and Aaron performed all these wonders before Pharaoh, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country.
1: If you ever went near Sunday school as a kid, I'm fairly certain that you would have heard at least part of the story that we're looking at today from these chapters of Genesis, this big chunk from chapter 7 through to chapter 15. You would have heard about the 10 plagues that God sent on the people of Egypt, and I'm sure you would have heard the story about Moses parting the Red Sea. Now, it's really no surprise that these are going to be at the top of the Sunday school favourites list, is it? I mean, there's are stories that have action and drama, there are stories that are filled with incredible miracles, uh, people being asked to trust God, uh, the baddies getting what they deserve, and, and God's people being rescued and saved by an all-powerful God. Now, this morning, as I said, it's a very big chunk that we're going to look at, but it's really just one event. It's the Exodus. It's what the book is named after. This is God's people being set free from their slavery in Egypt. This is Israel being led out of captivity to begin their journey to the promised land. And this is the major salvation event in the pages of the Old Testament. This is the event that Israel will be told to continually remember... And they'll remember it in the Passover that they are to celebrate. Now, we're asking those same three questions. What does the passage tell us? What does it tell us about how God deals with his people? And what does it tell us about how God deals with his people in Jesus? So, first question, basic comprehension question. What does this passage tell us? This large chunk from chapter 7 through to chapter 15. Well, when we finished looking at Exodus last week in chapter 6, Moses had already made his first appearance before Pharaoh, asking that the people of Israel be set free. And Pharaoh had simply refused. In fact, he'd made life even more miserable for the Israelites by increasing their workload. Well, God's not about to let it end there. He intends to rescue his people and he intends that his glory will be seen through these events. He tells Moses to go back to Pharaoh and he's to tell Pharaoh that God means business, that God's not mucking around here. He's to take the staff with him, the staff that he was to take, he was to throw it down onto the ground and it was going to turn into a snake. Now, we need to be sh- clear about the picture that we have. I, again, I think Charlton Heston has done us a, a little bit of a disservice here because whenever we think, oh, maybe this is just me, but whenever I think of Moses, I always think of this. I mean, that's the strong figure that 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 we picture for the person of Moses. Um, but one of the important things that this passage tells us, in chapter 7, verse 7, Moses is now 80 years old. Charlton Heston was 33 when he played that part in the movie. So it's not a particularly accurate representation, even though they've tried to give him a little bit of grey hair. That's not what Moses would have looked like standing before Pharaoh. Moses would have looked more like this. Now, with the greatest of respect to all of those people who may be close to 80 or perhaps even beyond 80, I I, I don't want to sound rude, but it would have looked crazy, wouldn't it? An 80-year-old man standing in front of the most powerful man in the world at that time. I mean, that's what Pharaoh was. He was regarded by his own people as a god. Here he is, here is Moses, the 80-year-old, with his 83-year-old brother, He'd been out of the country for quite some time, people didn't even know who this guy was, standing before Pharaoh, and everybody knew who that guy was, and Moses is saying, you've got to let these people go. Well, Pharaoh says no, and the plagues begin. First three plagues, turns the water in Egypt to blood, covers the land with frogs, and then finally covers it with gnats. It's interesting, with the first three miracles that happen, the the staff changing into a snake, uh, the water turning to blood, and the frogs, Pharaoh's magicians can kind of duplicate that. They can do something similar. They've got some magic trick that they're capable of doing that looks the same as what it is that Moses has done. But while they can duplicate that, They can't undo what it is that Moses has done. They can't rescue Pharaoh from what it is that Moses has done. They may be able to conjure up some kind of trick that looks similar to what Moses has done by God's power, but they can't rescue Egypt. They can't undo what Moses has done. Well, then we see the next three plagues, plague number four, five, and six, covering the land with flies, sending a plague that takes out all of the livestock in the land, Uh, giving the people boils. And we're also told that the magicians, they couldn't even stand before Moses now. The boils were so painful, presumably. They're now covered with boils. And then come the next three plagues. Hailstorm, locusts, and then the darkness. Now, with each of these plagues, Pharaoh responds in a different way. With some of them, he is completely unmoved, not changing his mind, not even going to entertain changing his mind. With some of them, he tries to negotiate with Moses. He says, look, okay, I'll let the men go, but everybody else has got to stay. Or I'll let all the people go, but you can't take your livestock with you. After some of the plagues, he actually agrees to let them go just to stop the plague. But as soon as the plague has been lifted, he then changes his mind and refuses to let the people go. Well, finally, God sends this plague on the firstborn. And this one clearly stands apart from the rest. There's a few chapters devoted to explaining what's going to happen here. And the pl- this plague is bound together with the Passover for the people of Israel. The Israelites were to do two things in preparation for this plague that was about to come on Egypt. They were to sacrifice a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost of their house. This was to ensure that when the angel of death came over he would know which houses to bypass because these are the houses of the Israelites. But then they're to eat a meal as well, this meal of lamb, unleavened bread, and they are to drink bitter herbs. The unleavened bread is to remind them that they had to flee quickly. The bitter herbs are to remind them about the bitter experience that they've had in Egypt. And the lamb is the lamb that was sacrificed to place the blood on the door. And have a look in chapter 12, it's interesting. It says there in verse 11, they're to do this, they're to enjoy this whole meal with their cloak tucked into their belt your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You eat this standing up ready to go because this is it. You've got to be packed and ready. You are leaving Egypt. You are about to escape your slavery. This will be the last meal that you will eat in Egypt. And that's what happens. The Lord passed over Egypt, striking dead the firstborn of every house, from Pharaoh right down to the slave girl. The only houses that weren't touched were the houses of the Israelites, the ones where the blood had been spread on the doorpost. It happens just as God said it would. All the firstborn in Egypt died that night. And the people of Israel were spared. And now Pharaoh actually summons Moses and Aaron to come to see him. And he pleads with them to leave the country. Chapter 12, verse 31. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, "Up, Leave my people, you and the Israelites. Go, worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds, as you have said, and go. And also, bless me. It's really hard to imagine what this would have looked like in Egypt, isn't it? I mean, I don't think you can even really begin to get your head around it. Two million people leaving all at once, making their way out of Egypt. I don't know, the the, the picture that springs to my mind when I hear about that mass evacuation, people leaving, the thing that comes to my mind is the fall of Saigon. I mean, there's loads of pictures that you can find on the internet. People desperately trying to get out of Saigon as the North Vietnamese army is making its way to take over the South. People fleeing any way that they possibly can. Boats, helicopters, cars, trucks, even on foot. Anything to get out of there. That was just thousands of people. Well, the Israelites are doing it with millions and they're doing it in the pitch dark. I always think there's a lot of people when I go to a rugby match and you see all of those people trying to leave at the end of the match and get to the car park or get to where the buses and trains are. That feels like an enormous amount of people and that's only about 40, 45,000 people. But this is millions of people. Well they hadn't gone far when Pharaoh again changes his mind. He sent his army out to bring back the Israelites. He doesn't want to lose the slave labour. He's built a very strong economy on the back of these Israelites. So he sends the army out to bring them back. Pharaoh makes their way towards where they are camped. Moses and the people of Israel are camped beside the Red Sea. Water stretching out on one side, Pharaoh's army closing in on the other. And and it's a delightful touch of cynicism from the people of Israel. Uh, Look at what they say to Moses. Chapter 14, verse number 11. They said to Moses, was it because there are no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here into the desert to die? What have you done to us, bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than die in the desert showing a lot of faith there aren't they a lot of confidence these people but Moses shows that he's confident look at what Moses says Moses answered the people do not be afraid stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today the Egyptians you see today you will never see again the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. God told Moses to hold out his staff and the waters parted and they walked through on dry ground. Just as they reach the other side, the Egyptians try to do the same thing but without the same success. They are covered with water and they drown. And this section finishes with a song of praise. Praise to God for what it is that he has done. This is the end of their captivity in Egypt. This is the beginning of their freedom. Now, I want to pause there for just a moment because we've covered a lot of Exodus just in three Sundays. We're right up to chapter 15 now. And there's some weird stuff in here. I mean, seriously. And there's things that I have to say I don't understand. I mean, back in chapter 2, Moses killing the Egyptian. I don't get that. Uh, Moses telling Pharaoh that they're only going to be gone for three days. They only want to go out into the desert for three days. Moses knows full well that they're going forever. They're they're going to be gone. They're not coming back. Why does he tell him that? Chapter 4, God saying that he's going to kill Moses or Moses' son. I'm not sure which one it is. It's a little bit obscure in the passage. Even the death of the firstborn sons in Egypt. It seems a little severe, doesn't it? But for all that I don't understand in the, this passage, the main idea is really clear, isn't it? God has promised that He will take His people to the land He has said that He will give them. And God is fulfilling His promise. And even with all of these plagues, while they may seem harsh, let's remember God repeatedly removed the plagues as well. So with each of those plagues, God gave them respite from them. And while the last plague may seem a little harsh, let's not forget this is nowhere near as bad as what Pharaoh had already done to the people of Israel by killing all the Hebrew baby boys. And by the time we get to the 10th plague, well, Pharaoh's been warned, hasn't he? I mean, he's quite clear how how capable God is of doing what he said he will do. Well, the second question, what does the passage tell us about how God deals with his people? Well, I think it's a fairly simple answer to that question. God is willing to go to extraordinary lengths to fulfil his promises. I mean, this is one of the most dramatic passages in the whole Old Testament. There's a verse that we also might be tempted to look overlook. Have a look. Chapter 13, Exodus chapter 13, and find verse number 19. It says this, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear an oath. He had said, God will surely come to you, to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. Do you remember the story at the end of Genesis? Just before Joseph dies, he gathers around the leadership, the family and says, don't bury me here. I'm going to die here, but don't bury me here because God's got another place in store for us. God's got a land that he's going to give us. So put my bones in a box and when God comes to your rescue, take those bones and bury them in that promised land. I mean, extraordinary faith from Joseph, wasn't it? And it's 430 years later that those bones are being carried up. God has fulfilled his promise. And again, it would be hard to imagine what it would have been like to have been in Egypt when each of these plagues are coming. I mean, I'm sure... You might have seen a good hailstorm in your time. Uh, if you've lived out in the country, you might have even seen a locust swarm. But 10 plagues in a matter of just a few days? I mean, it would have been unbelievable. But the purpose of those plagues is very clear. Even before the first plague has happened, have a look in chapter 7, verse number 5. God explains why it is that he's doing this. And the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. There is a lesson for the Egyptians here to know who Yahweh is, to know who this God is and what he is capable of. But flip over to chapter 10 because the lesson wasn't just for the people of Egypt. Chapter 10, the opening two verses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that, and that you may know that I am Yahweh. It's for the people of Israel to have a clear picture of just how powerful their God is and just how faithful their God is to his promises. They would see God's love for them in what happens and they're to tell their children they are never to forget what it is that Yahweh has done for them. But There's something else that we learn about God in this passage as well. It's almost a battle of the gods taking place. Go back to chapter 5 and find verse number 2. This is what Pharaoh says the first time that Moses goes to speak to him. Pharaoh said, Who is Yahweh that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh and I will not let Israel go. Here's a man viewed by his own people and presumably thinks himself to be a god as well doing battle with another God that he says he's never heard of. Well, if it's a battle of the gods that's taking place, then it's a very one-sided battle because it's a battle that Yahweh wins at every turn. Now, the big question is, what does this passage tell us about how God deals with his people in Jesus? And again, this one's fairly obvious, I think. I mean, all of this, this exodus, all of this salvation plan that's being unfolded here, it's really just a shadow of what God's going to do through his son Jesus, isn't it? Here's what Paul says about uh, Jesus. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And I'm sure that Peter's got the Passover in mind when he says... We have been redeemed by the, by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. There's an unusual verse in John's Gospel where John makes note of the fact that when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, none of his bones were broken. And he actually says that that happened in order that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And I think the scripture that he might have in mind is the one there in Exodus Chapter 12, when they sacrifice the Passover lamb, they are to cook it and they are to eat it, but they're not to break any of the bones of that lamb. The Israelites were spared judgment, the judgment that came on Egypt because of the blood of a lamb. So too, we're spared God's judgment by the blood of a lamb, of Jesus. It's no coincidence that Jesus dies on the cross at the time of the Passover. It's no coincidence that the night before he goes to the cross, he shares the Passover with his disciples. But he doesn't just share it. He actually redefines the Passover, explains to them that they're not to remember those things anymore. They're now to remember what it is that he has done. Remember that his blood has been shed. Remember that his body has been broken. Jesus says that he is establishing the new covenant between God and his people. You reach Revelation chapter 5, how is Jesus pictured? He's pictured as the bloodied lamb standing on the throne. To New Testament writers, well, they're in no doubt. They get it. They see it clearly. The Exodus is really just a forerunner, a precursor to what it is that God is going to do through his son Jesus. But there's one more thing that you need to see in this passage as well about how God deals with his people in Egypt. Israel's salvation didn't come about because of anything that they had done. It came about only because of what God had done for them. Salvation is all God's work. It was true for Moses and the people of Israel, and it's just as true for us in the person of Jesus. I mean, this is such a fundamental thing in Christianity, but it's something that people so often get confused about. If you're sitting here today and you think that you will be accepted by God because of your efforts, your contribution, because of what you have done, then can I say, you've missed the whole point of Christianity. You've completely misunderstood it. And worse than that, what you have is not really a genuine faith. Not the faith that God's calling you to. I mean, the Bible couldn't stress this point any more strongly. This is what Paul says to the Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The Israelites didn't make it out of Egypt because of wonderful planning and effort on their part. They got out because they trusted God and God saved them. Our salvation is totally, 100%, completely and fully what God has done for us in Jesus. We can't take the credit for anything other than desperately needing to be saved. And what God wants us to do is to stop trusting ourselves And place our trust in his son. All we can do is thank God for what it is that he's done for us. All we can do is live a life of gratitude to God for all that he's done for us. God doesn't call us to earn his favour. He has showed us his favour in Jesus. And he simply asks us to trust him. So that we can thoroughly enjoy his favour.